everyone, and welcome to the Coffee Talk by Colstack, by the React Native Show podcast. I'm Mukash, your host. With me today is Michal, our uh, head of technology for React Native. And uh, also we have a special guest, maintainer of Webpack and creator of Module Federation, Zach. Zach, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good, doing good. So I'm grateful to have you here today uh, because today we want to talk about the newest conference from Next.js when they announced the Next.js version 13. And with this, they announced the alpha version of TurboPack, which is like, I don't know if it's a Webpack competitor. I don't think if you can say that, but I think it's heavily influenced by Webpack. So we will talk about that. But let's start from the conference itself. Do you think it was too much Apple-like or was it not enough Apple-like? What do you think? I think it could be more Apple, uh, but just just a tiny bit. <laughs> yeah, will look like a second Steve, basically. And, uh, and all the, you know, the stories of merchants and uh, yeah, and, and the like the style of, of things like the the summaries this is like copy paste from uh, from Apple keynotes and uh, if I haven't watched Apple keynotes before I would think like this is pretty awesome and now like it's it, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit weird I guess uh, but it, it it looks really good it just feels weird that the uh, you know, hosting company uh, and the developer tool is doing this kind of marketing, right? Well, they have to spend their like $300 million on something, <laughs> right? Um, I, I liked it. Uh, I like the bridges. I like the uh, going to the London and back to San Francisco. What I didn't like was the uh, pictures, the slides. The slides were very, very Apple-like. Uh, the style of presentation I liked, but the visuals not so much. I generally like the the next conferences um, that they put out there. I think the only thing that we're starting to see is like this was clearly very marketing induced, and I mean I get that they have VC funding, they have to show returns and all of that, and. So, you know, I think from a marketing standpoint, this is great, but there's also a bit of that, um, I don't know, the other conferences were more like true to the, to the, to the tech, to the initiatives. This was, like you say, like the Apple style, it's, you know, you know, the next, the, the best iPhone ever created <laughs> and every conference is the best, fastest phone that's ever so, but you know, like there's a lot of marketing splicing yeah, yeah, yeah. going hey. in there, which I, I mean, it's it's strategy, very very good strategy. I think it's going to have a strong impact on what they were trying to get out of it from the marketing standpoint. But from a open software standpoint, I do they have enough clout that they can paraphrase things and it will be taken up as truth. And we have enough of a problem of that in Twitter tech anyway, where, you know, one guy tweets out that it's not possible and the entire technology community never attempts to try it because that dude said it wasn't possible to do. And so I yeah, just fear that fine. the clout here yep. is going to change opinions to certain to ways that aren't 
accurate. Let's move on to the tech right now. Uh, let's discuss the, the tech announcements. There, there were a few, uh, not too many, I, I would say. Uh, we will leave in the uh, Turbo Pack at the end. And let's start from layouts, maybe. So my personal opinion, uh, I've been hearing about layouts since last year. Since last year, they were in beta. So I was really surprised how much time and effort they uh, dedicated to showcasing those because I, I knew almost all of it uh, beforehand. I, um, I think, well, with the way that I've seen Versal usually put this stuff out is it goes out as an RFC or as a beta and yeah. they document it, but like with middleware, that changed drastically, like breaking changes drastically. So I do feel like it was probably good just to re-communicate, like here's closer to the final version because the like you'll find apps and examples and everything written out there with different various versions of the canary or of the beta. So kind of getting the full overview of here's what it actually ended up looking like, I feel is good to reiterate, but the foundational concepts there were pretty much the same. But I think they did have to reiterate it because building it in the open everybody's going to think that it works this way and then the final implementation it doesn't so somewhere they've got to consolidate and be like well this is this is it this is the final form very similar but some nuanced differences that if we don't talk about it you might use what you thought worked and it break your app so i kind of get it so, but. Uh, yeah, the, i think they still use uh use the beta uh, keywords somewhere in the in the documentation so it looks like it came out of rfc and entered the beta stage like right now so, so actually, there are I, still uh, some changes you know uh, they said it was actually production now uh, production like the, the 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 final version is here that's out of the beta right now so that's why they announced it what is the final version though so we have instead of the pages directory we have the app directory now, and in the app directory, you have this new structure of your uh, page, which is Remix influenced. Let's let's be honest about that. And you can uh, you can fetch data, and you can navigate through your application on components basis and not on the page basis, right? Do you do you do you, do you have some more context around that that I missed? So the the way that I yeah so they've introduced nested which they've needed for a long time I think this has been the biggest problem with the React server framework ecosystem is that it's all the limits have been designed around the server problem I can only fetch data at one point and the only place that I can know where I am is when I'm on a page with suspense now you can fetch data anywhere. And now they've obviously you can see they've been waiting for suspense to get off the root based data fetching and now move like deeper in, which is um, which is great to see. Uh, I've been wanting it for like a really long time. And I think one of the nice benefits as well is it's no longer the waterfall before it was underscore app and then the page and so on and so on. Like document app page would waterfall in and on next 11, we I developed kind of like layouts, but not as nicely implemented as they do. But the whole concept of parallel fetching where anybody can push data into 
this promise all loop, and at the top of the app we just say fetch all data in parallel. We have a pre-process hook and a post-process hook, so if you need one call to happen before the other ones do, it can, but it's very nice to see that, that parallel pattern start to come forward. And the component data fetching, I think, is going to be, like, really big. Yeah, this is, uh, like, empowered by uh, React server components, right? Like, right now, so, uh, so the most of the work is done on the server. Only a small part of JavaScript is uh, sent once to the client, and as, uh, as uh, the app scales, this amount of JavaScript from the server component is not changing. Um, and uh, this seems pretty pretty great. And uh, like one interesting thing about it uh, is uh, uh, is the part of the q and a that happened after the uh, after the keynote. Uh, and it was uh, Andrew Clark from the React core team. Um, and he framed it like the next thirteen is a like a real React 18 launch for Next.js yeah. users. Yeah. Um, and uh, because it features uh, Suspense, uh, React Server uh, components, and uh, all of those goodies from, um, from React uh, 18 that allow us to do uh, component data fetching. Yeah, uh, what they actually said was that the, in React 18, they uh, added a lot of low-level APIs that weren't really like user developer accessible, and we needed a version of a framework to get use of those APIs in order to like really benefit from them. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure if you uh, noticed like uh, there was uh, because of uh, Next.js and their collaboration with the React core team, uh, there was a change to uh, to the server components uh, like semantics. So now, and at least in in Next.js, uh, every component under the uh, app directory is by default a React server component. And if you want it to be a client component, you you need to use uh, this directive, use client. Uh, so this is similar to like use strict that we used uh, before Babel, uh, basically. And uh, I hope that uh, this is somehow automated uh, with with ESLint or, uh, or some tooling that uh, Will let us know that we're using uh, use state in uh, client in, in server environment instead of the um, client. So uh, yeah, this is this is pretty this is pretty big. big. Uh, I waited uh, a long time for for this feature. So really glad Some to try it out. Something that really uh, stood out stood out to me in like the keynote first, and then it was explained. I think in the in the Q and A. But uh, tell me if I'm wrong here. Before uh, Next thirteen, uh, we had like several different concepts in in Next.js, like server side rendering and static site uh, generation and incremental static site generation stuff like that. This yeah, they're still there. They, they removed this completely, this naming conventions from the keynote, and someone actually asked from the audience, I think, and they explained that like it's not, it's no longer relevant. I think like it's all abstracted away, and it's all uh, been taken care of with server components. Is that right? Well, to, to some degree, yeah, because server components, they, they you export an async function, and that async function can, can leverage React use. So you can just say React use, 
fetch, whatever, blah, 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 and then it works. And because it's a certain... Because it's a server component, it shouldn't re-render multiple times. So the use hook doesn't need to subscribe to if it mounts or unmounts or stuff like that. So I think it does simplify some things a lot. I'm just, I, I need to play with it, which I have the code base right now. And I'm busy, like, I took their demo one and I'm now creating two copies of it where one is just federating every file from another one to verify that my implementations all work. But... The general thing I've seen with server components is how hard is it going to be to learn? And it looks like with the directives, they've gotten some things in there, but I can still see there's going to be some confusion. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. How this works and why things don't work here. And like my biggest problem I've had with server components all along has been it's great in theory, but it's going to be really complex to try and like make sure engineers understand you can only send serialized data to a server component. So if you send it JSX, you can't pass a function to it. It won't work or you can't mix them. And, uh, you know, one of the bad side effects of the Next.js create React app type frameworks is it lowers the amount of low level information you need to know, which is great normally until it's not. So you have devs who don't really know how React server components works or anything because Next does all the work, but now there's a gap in real, in like expert knowledge. They know how to use Next, they don't know how React really works, and now when you introduce stuff like this, I, I don't know, it's just, I can see a lot of like weirdness coming out of it from it. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I think it's the right move, it's just they need to have executed it well, and time will tell if they did. Yeah, yeah, I would expect this is uh, this is gonna have a similar time adoption as uh, hooks, uh, which are still controversial, damn it, uh, and uh, but they prove to be very useful in uh, in many cases. So, uh, um, like, yeah. I, I see a big benefit for server components. So, like, I have a bunch of SVGs on my website, and due to just how Next deals with certain things and image artifacts, we we use SVGR, convert them all to React, and now we can inline them. The side effect of that is um, the rendering icons on my website is the most expensive uh, computational cost we have. So seeing server components comes out, I'm like, okay, that's great. I can make all my SVG icons just be server components. I don't need to rehydrate anything there. I just don't need React Create Element to run in the browser to recreate essentially an inline SVG. So I could see some really good benefits for it in cases like that. That's going to have great improvements on performance in practical applications with state and stuff like that on big features. I feel there's going to be confusion there. But from an optimization yeah. point, I could see a lot of really good gains. Definitely. But you're going to have to adapt to a very different way of thinking in general on how you build an app and what runs where and like, when do I need state and how do I need this state? And there was a question about that in the, in the Q and a about the context, server context, client context, stuff like that. But Zach, we have you here for one specific topic. And before we move to this one specific topic, which is turbo pack, uh, let's talk about, last uh, bullet point from the conference, which I think was was quite important, uh, but understated, in my opinion, uh, fonts. Like, 
font support in Next.js. Uh, right now, if I want to do some web development, which I'm not the web developer, but if I wanted to do something, I would definitely like use probably Google fonts or something like that. I don't know. But like Next right now allows us to use fonts, uh, let's say natively for Next, some stuff, something like that. Can I say that? Like your own fonts. Like if I purchased a commercial font and I want to use it for my brand, that's been like dealing with, what's the best way to put it? Non-JavaScript resources in Next has always been a real pain. Like if your NPM package uses CSS, good luck. <laughs> or if it uses fonts or if it imports an image, like it's a nightmare to deal with. And I don't know, that's been a big pain point. So the biggest things I like about the layouts and the fonts and the image stuff is they're dealing with what I call side effects. Things that don't execute on the server but need to show up in the browser and have to be printed a certain way in the server. And they're finally dealing with, oh, well now if, you're, if your NPM package imports CSS, you're allowed to do that without having to like heavily change how the build works in order to make it run. So long overdue, honestly, it's long overdue. Like you could do this with a normal Webpack app five years ago. So they're definitely oh. playing catch up in the space, but finally. So Zach, let, let, me, let me make a bridge now. Do you know what you cannot do with regular Webpack app? Do it with TurboPack. <laughs> So with hey, TurboPack... So what is this? What is this TurboPack thing? So, I mean, I've just started, like, so I don't read Rust, so now I've got to go and learn Rust, yay. But um, I started reading over the code, uh, the Rust code base, and it's, I mean, I kind of see what's happening, but anyway, I'll, that's more of a, another issue. Um, so as soon as TurboPack got released, or they announced it, I immediately had my heart sink because... It was just, first, they say it's the successor to Webpack, and I'm like, well, nobody told us, you know, Webpack was being replaced, because they made it sound like they're they're deprecating Webpack as a project, and they're making TurboPack instead. But that's just, again, marketing. It's Webpack is not going anywhere. Webpack 6 is still on the roadmap. They're just, you know, trying to market something as, like, a newer, faster thing. But anyway, so that aside, when I go and look at it, reading the Rust code, it's hard to understand what's going on, and there's a lot of stuff missing from the project, so I can't draw a lot of conclusions yet, but I can run a build and look at what does TurboPack emit as a runtime. And so that actually gave me the most insights. When you build TurboPack and you look at your dist folder, it looks dangerously close to Webpack. So to the point right. where inside of Webpack, you have Webpack require, and that's what the require function is called. And guess what it's called in TurboPack? Underscore, underscore, TurboPack, underscore, import. So it looks like they just took all the words where it said Webpack and they string replaced it with TurboPack from a runtime standpoint. How the chunking system works is exactly the same as Webpacks. It uses the push where you get a chunk and you push a set of module IDs into the runtime and there's something that binds to an array. And whenever you push into the array, they watch push and push goes register modules into the module cache. So it's basically the Webpack runtime and Webpack chunking system. They just took, they just wrote the, it's Webpack written in Rust. That's the easiest way to look at it. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know what we are losing? We are losing like hundreds of seconds. That's first. But then we are losing the whole plugin system. Well, so, so like, yeah, but 
Webpack written in Rust would dictate much faster because it's not, and it's not even that Webpack's gotten a bad rap for being slow, but most of the slowness of Webpack isn't Webpack's fault. It's Node's fault because of how Node buffers files. Whenever you read a file with FS, it goes into a buffer, which loads into memory, and then you convert the buffer back to UTF-8. And none of the other lower-level languages buffer something into memory and then convert it to a string. They just print the string out as it comes. So reading files in a JavaScript builder is slow because it's got all the memory and buffer overhead. So that's why these other, that's why ES build is so fast. It doesn't use Node to read the file system. So it skips buffering it. So I don't know. So I've always been like, well, actually, guys, on on that when they say Webpack is slow because it's mostly Node's fault. But yeah, it's significantly faster because it's a Rust tool chain. And we know Rust is already like highly performant, which is great. But we are now, we are losing the entire ecosystem of all Webpack plugins. And if you look at Rollup or ES, look at any, like name, a, name another bundler tool. And I can guarantee you they don't have the same plugin loader footprint as Webpack has. So now all of your plugins aren't going to work. So you lose all the plugins and right now it can't support like a dynamic import server side. It'll just crash. So it's clearly missing. It, it barely works for the browser. Let me put it that way. But I can see, I think overall it's a clever strategy and I'm very hopeful, but its success is going to depend on what does the new plugin API look like? It has to be, it's not going to be one-to-one -to, -one to Webpack, which is fine, but it has to be an API that's just as good as Webpack. Otherwise, it's going to end up like another Rome tools. It's just, it's it's another, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's going to, it's going to end up being another thing that does one thing really well. And if you needed to do something else, it won't do it. Therefore, it alienates most of the enterprise market share. My, my biggest like hope here is, like if it wasn't being if it wasn't backed by Tobias, the the founder of Webpack, I would see it and be like, yeah, no, this is not going to be, you know, no. <laughs> but because it's being built out by the founder of Webpack, I I know how he designs his APIs, and I'm very sure what we're going to end up with is a Webpack equivalent written in Rust, different API, but an API that's as flexible enough as Webpacks was. You'll have to rewrite your whole plugin ecosystem, but I hope, and what I think will happen is it will have enough of an API to be able to do it. The big question is gonna be, are they going to introduce a JavaScript API, like a JavaScript SDK, like tappable hooks mm -hmm. that just like delegate stuff to WebAssembly, like ESBuild did. If they, if they don't do that and they say, all you can do is write Rust plugins, I feel like good luck it, with community plugins then it's going to be very because and it's not even like I mean, the biggest problem is just that Rust is very difficult to try and look at and read and write and understand compared to JavaScript. And now you're going to introduce something like Webpack API was already complicated. And now you're going to say, well, if it's if it's the equivalent of a Webpack API in Rust, you know, good luck, like <laughs> So I, I hope they introduce some kind of JS SDK further down the line where I could just say I could write a plugin that's in JS because cool, what am I doing in JS most of the time? It's read some modules in a loop and change this and that and send the object back. 
where I need all the performance is in analyzing the build graph, looping over the 30,000 modules, finding the interconnections, the, the parser, the optimization, all of that should be in Rust. But we should still have some way where I can hook in, and if I just want to say, if this string contains so-and-so, do this instead, those simple things should still be JavaScript friendly, because that's Easy. not where the performance bottleneck comes from 90% yeah. of the time. Okay. I think we've got it. I think we've just covered, I think we've just have our opinions heard about the next JS uh, 13 conference. Thank you so much, guys. That was a pleasure to host you, Zach, to host you, Michal. Uh, to all of our listeners, thanks so much for listening and see you the next time. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.